Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Unrivaled talk. Fast talk. Honest talk. Talk radio. The home of free speech. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hard-working, hard-edged, hard to beat. Talk radio. Let's broaden our minds. Access all arguments. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome one and all to my mid-morning spectacular right here on talk TV. I'm standing in for the great Mike Graham until Friday, and today I'm with you all the way until 1pm. Another hectic news day. Here's what's coming up. Like a doddery night in ancient armour, sleepy Joe Biden arrives on our shores and vows to preserve peace in Northern Ireland. Well, gee, thanks, Joe. But I think we can handle this without your geriatric anti-English help. You go off and pretend to be Irish while we eagerly await your pint of Guinness photo call. I'm all for the President of the United States hopping over the Atlantic on Air Force One and showing an interest. But do we really need this old guy's help? I'll keep you up to speed with the presidential visit throughout the morning. Talking to Peter Carwell over in Northern Ireland and other commentators. Uh, what do you think? 0344-499-1000. Do we need Joe to sort Ireland out? If we do, I would suggest we're in big trouble. 0344-499-1000. Meanwhile, remember Rishi Sunak's recent solemn pledge to stop the boats? The Prime Minister's five-point plan to solve the migrant crisis? How's that going? Answer, it's not Shocking new figures reveal that a record 1,106, count them, 1,106 my asylum seekers have crossed the channel over the past week. That's a record. And what exactly are we getting for the half a billion quid Sunak handed to Monsieur Macron for better cooperation? Is it to fund France's navy so that its warships can escort the dinghies into British waters for a safe journey to our beaches? Maybe ordering the odd ferry to change course to make way for the migrants? Incredibly, that's precisely what just happened. Should Rishi get the Downing Street handymen and women to paint a don't in front of his famous lectern slogan, Stop the Boats? 
absolutely ludicrous. What the hell is going on? 03444991000. In other news, as the junior doctor's strike enters day two, I'll keep you up to speed with the industrial action on the altar of which patients are dying. Don't let these militant medics tell you otherwise. Speaking of whom, congratulations to the leader of the pompously named left-wing trade union, the British Medical Association, Dr. Rob Lawrenson, a young public schoolboy who in the heat of the battle has gone on holiday on full pay. He couldn't make it up. What's that about? 03444991000. Plus, why are non-smoker taxpayers expected to fund an expensive government drive to get nicotine addicts to switch from cigarettes to vapes and to foot the bill for a £400 voucher to pregnant women to persuade them to quit? Is this the nanny state in action? 0344. 499-1000. Also, the fabled Confederation of British Industry, once one of the, our most respected organisations, appears to be turning into Rape Central amid allegations of wide-scale sexual abuse. CBI boss Tony Danker has been summarily dismissed and three other executives have been suspended. Danker has apologised but says he wasn't given the chance to tell his side of the sordid story. But what's going on? Is this the end of the CBI? 03444991000. Back with the battle for British values. Chief Executive of the Freedom Association, Andrew Allison, joins me later with bad news about the fight for freedom of speech. He fears we're losing. Do you? 03444991000. And the race to buy Manchester United is going down to the wire. I'll bring you the latest as the contenders reach the final furlong. Who looks most likely to end up owning the most valuable sports brand in the world? Find out later. All that and so much more, so don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now, the home of free speech and common sense. Talk TV. Let's spend Wednesday morning together. Uh, in a little while, uh, I'm going to be talking to uh, Greg Swenson from the Republican Overseas Organization uh, with his take on the presidential visit of old Joe Biden. Also, we'll be going live uh, to Northern Ireland to talk to our correspondent, uh, talk radio political editor Peter Carbwell, with all the latest news from over there, especially the uh, security operation, £7 million uh, spent to preserve the president's safety. Uh, alarmingly, pipe bombs have been found in Londonderry, so it's all going on over there. Plus, there will be a uh, meeting later today between uh, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden. Uh, Rishi Sunak's calling it bilateral talks. Uh, the Americans are calling it bilate talks. They say it's just a quick coffee. Uh, but, uh, of course, Joe wants to spend his time pretending to be Irish. He's just as English as he's Irish, by the way. But, of course, you know, he doesn't like the English. He hates us. Uh, so we'll be heading down to the Emerald Isle, down to the southern part of Ireland, the actual country of Ireland uh, for his pint of Guinness photo call. He'll drink about that much of it. You watch. If you're really Irish, Joe, finish the damn pint. Go on, make it a first. A president who goes to Ireland and actually finishes the pint. Go on, Joe. You can do it. Uh, so uh, we'll be 
covering that story throughout the first hour. Now, uh, and also much more about the migrant strike, which is uh, going from the sublime, not the sublime, from the ridiculous to the more ridiculous. Uh, before we get to any of that, though, let's go to my first guest, uh, political and social commentator James Melville. Morning, James. Good morning, Kevin. Bright and breezy today instead of the Sunday afternoon slots. Here we are, yeah, on a Wednesday morning. Uh, good to see you, mate. Uh, now, uh, do we need Joe Biden's help to preserve peace in Northern Ireland? Before you answer that, let me give you the answer. No, we do not. What is this old fool doing? He, he's like an ineffectual phantom. I mean, he, what, what has he actually done in the last few years, apart from cause a lot of problems? Mm -hmm. I mean, an American economy that's tanking con consistently, largely through inflation. But this seems to be a tradition with American presidents. It goes back to Kennedy. You know, Reagan was doing it. Clinton was doing it. Now, oh, Biden's doing it. Actually, with your surname, you're probably more equipped to do it than... I said this yesterday. I said, you, you want Irish ancestors? Talk to me. My name's Kevin O'Sullivan. Joe <laughs> Biden will kill to have my name, but he can't yeah, have it. He would. He can't have uh, it. Well, I've got, I've got Irish heritage on my grandmother's side as well. Maybe we should do a double act there. We'll probably get more done. Yeah, indeed. But it's actually it's a classic example of American presidents claiming some Irish heritage and trying to be the global policeman again. Um, you know, it's been going through the ages. It's actually quite patronising. And um, I do agree that there needs to be something that's sorted out there. Maybe that should be the responsibility of the Irish politicians and possibly with a bit of intervention and light touch from the British government as well, because they actually know the issues at hand and they need to resolve it themselves. This smacks of tokenism. He might as well dress up in a shamrock or leprechaun outfit. And I agree, he's, he's not going to, you know, he'll do that token thing of drinking a pint of Guinness, but he won't drink all of it. If he's a true Irishman, he'll let the pint settle. And yeah. then he'll down it pretty and then, quickly. And then he'll have another pint if he's a true Irishman. And another and another and another. But he won't. He won't. He'll do the photo call, you know, half an inch and that'll be it. Uh, we're going to be covering this story at length uh, later on. So let's move on to what I think uh, will be concerning uh, millions of Brits a lot more than Joe Biden's visit. And that is the migrant crisis. I mean, the news today is absolutely shocking. Uh, in the past week, it's a record 1,000. 116 migrants have crossed the channel in small boats and dinghies. Uh, and we hear extraordinary stories of a French warship uh, ordering a British ferry to divert its course so that the French warship can bring, uh, escort some migrant boats into British waters to make sure they reach British shores safely. Uh, extraordinary. Is that is that what we gave Macron half a billion quid for? So that the Navy can escort migrant boats into British waters. Uh, as I said earlier, James, I think that uh, uh, Rishi Sunak needs to get the Downing Street handyman to carve a don't in front of his famous stop the boat slogan because he's not doing it. It's ridiculous. I think there's two angles to this, Kevin. I think Macron might be doing trying to deflect with a lot of the problems that are going on in France at the moment. You know, there's been protests now for about a month, largely to do with the pensions reform, but a few other things as well. Um, so there's maybe sort of that kind of strong approach from Macron. But this is a perfect storm. It was going to end up like this because the French and the British have not sorted this problem out. There needs to be an agreement on this, but from the British point of view, the British government point of view, there needs to be a proper structure in place about what's going to happen to, in terms of what's happening in the channel, 
what's happening in the agreement with the French, what is happening in verification when they arrive, not piecemeal solutions like hotels and barges and the rest of it, which is just stoking up even more resentment in communities, but not actually solving the problem. Uh, this has that... been going on for decades, and no British government is willing to do this properly. Actually address the public and say, look, there's a lot of benefits to immigration here, in particular economic immigration, but they need to say well, the structure is failing. You know, they're coming out with all this rhetoric, the British government, saying they're going to solve the problem. But the problem is a problem that they've actually created. So this was a, a record. This is the most migrants that have come over this year. Twice as many uh, that came over in the same week last year. Uh, now, last Wednesday, I think it was uh, something like uh, nearly 500 came across in a single day, uh, which... Uh, Begs the question, why don't we take those 500 and put them straight onto that barge that's going to be docked at Portland uh, because that only takes 519 migrants. So our government's going, oh, look, we've got a barge. We're going to put it in Portland Harbour, 519 migrants on that. Oh, we've got, some, uh, we've got a couple of disused RAF air bases. We're going to put a few hundred in there. We've got 60,000 all over the country in 500 hotels. All they're talking about is new and exciting forms of cheaper accommodation. By the way, it's not that cheap. Uh, they're not getting anywhere near even starting to solve this crisis, are they? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not solving the problem at all. It's just pushing it in a different direction. But, the, you know, you push it in a different direction, kick it into the long grass, but it doesn't mean the problem goes away. And that sums up, I think, the Sunak administration. He's been in the job long enough to actually have some effective long-term policies, not just in immigration and many other things, cost of living crisis, energy supply and resources, and also pricing being a number of them. But he's not solving it. It's piecemeal stuff. It just makes the problem bigger in the long term. And I think the public sees straight through him. They certainly see through this government. I think ever since Partygate, this government's been on the skids and they'll pay a heavy price in the local elections and also in the national election, the general election next year. I think I don't think Sunak resonates with the public at all. Yeah. He doesn't have the common touch. And I think the reason he resonates is twofold. He, he talks in sort of management speak the whole time. Mm -hmm. But also... I think people realise that it's Emperor's new clothes with him. Yeah. Yeah. What has he actually done yeah. to real effect and benefit on any issue? Absolutely nothing. He's coming up with jargon, simplistic policies that maybe give off the impression that he's doing something, but actually when you scratch the surface, there's nothing there. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's headline-grabbing stuff. And uh, he says that stop, we're going to stop the boats, and if you do get here and you're illegal, you will be turned round and sent back to whence you came. You can't do that if it's France, because we don't have a returns deal with France. And last year, what was it, nearly 50,000 came across. How many did we deport? How many did we return? Uh, 246. It's just not happening, and Rishi Sunak is going to have to learn there's a difference between bold statements, headline hunting, and actual action. And we're not seeing any action. Uh, I think this is a scandal. Uh, stay where you are, James. Uh, we'll resume this uh, conversation after these messages. I'm talking to James Melville, political and social commentator. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studio. Online on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Uh, welcome back. I'm still talking to political and social commentator James Melville. Uh, James, we're into day two of the junior doctors' strike. Uh, they're looking for a 35% pay rise. Uh, Health Secretary Steve Barclay says, I'm not getting round the table with you until you uh, be more realistic about what you possibly might end up getting. I mean, why not just get round the table with them and t tell them that face-to-face -face and say, look, you know you're not getting 35%. You know you're going to end end up with what the nurses did around about 10%. Let's get real. Why do we have to have this sort of ritual standoff about, you know, I'm tougher than you. We want 35%. They know they're not getting it. Uh, Steve Bartley said we haven't got any money. He'll find money just like he found money for the nurses and the ambulance strikes. While this nonsense unfolds before our very eyes, this ritual dance, patients are dying. Yeah, they're buying money. You know, the taxpayer for MPs pay rises above inflation, also MPs expenses. Um, but I agree in terms of the negotiation, it's the wrong way around. Yeah, we get the fact in a negotiation, you always come in with an overinflated um, approach in negotiation and you come back from that a little bit. But the other aspect of negotiation is you actually meet and you get around the table and you start from there and you put your cards on the table and you start negotiating from there. For this sort of optics, and we're not even going to chat. It's like something out of The Apprentice. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's pathetic. Meanwhile, more importantly, our waiting lists are going up, which will be stretched even more. And certain departments and facilities will be stretched again to the point of not working over the strike period. Um, and we've gone off the back of three years of waiting lists going up because of the backlog treatments from, from the COVID response and the prioritization of COVID treatment. And now we have this. The service is breaking as it is. I've got living experience of this over the last five weeks. Of course you have. You with hospital. your dad, yeah? Yeah. I've, I've seen it. The staff are amazing. But the facilities, it's not there. And there's, you know, there's a huge issue with the, the care supply at the end. But with this, it's putting more straight. And the government, what they should be saying is, right, we're going to get around the table here. And it's, whatever it takes, we're going to resolve this. This is not just something that's come out of the blue. There's been rumblings about this for about a year. Yet again, it's the government not getting on top of the issue. And suddenly there's a bigger problem. And the statements are sort of tough man statements saying, oh, we're not going to negotiate with you. This is too high. We're not going to get around the table. It's ridiculous. Meanwhile, because of this inaction, people's lives have been put at risk. Wasn't the government, they once said, they used that mantra over and over again, protect the NHS. Yeah. It's not just about protecting the NHS. It's about protecting us but protecting the people, protecting patients. And at the moment, that is not happening. It's actually putting people's lives at risk. Yeah, these NHS doctors are not protecting the NHS and they're not protecting patients. It's incredibly disingenuous when they say, oh, we've put in place a system whereby patients will uh, be properly treated, their safety will be ensured. That's not true. That is not true. There is no doubt whatsoever that just as the nurses' strikes causes, cause deaths and the ambulance drivers' strike caused deaths, the junior doctors' strike will cause deaths and probably more deaths. Uh, they have timed this four-day strike to come directly after the Easter bank holiday uh, when this is a critical period. Uh, this is really hardline stuff. 
putting patients' lives at risk on the altar of an industrial action by a left-wing trade union that should be called the National Union of Doctors, the NUD, instead of its pompous name, the British Medical Association. It's just a left-wing union. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is about people's lives. We were told that repeatedly over the pandemic. And yet you've now got a series of things with the NHS in terms of you know, lack of funding facilities, um, now you've got strike action. And if you look at things like excess deaths, even over the last year, there's a number of reasons for that. But the main reason is because of delays, treatment delays, people at home unable to get treatment. It's excess deaths at home that the thing that's largely been high for the last two or three years, especially coming out of the pandemic. Mm. But it's not helped by what's happening right now. So you're getting patients in hospital, whether they're getting the right treatment, that might be put at risk. And there's also people at home waiting for treatment. Yeah, It's completely unacceptable. But, you know, I've got every sympathy for the staff. I've got huge admiration for what they're doing. But I don't have much sympathy for the union and the government right now because they're displaying a mm. form of pathetic brinkmanship that has actually been going on for months and months and months. And then we're now in a situation where people's lives are at risk because of that. And that is completely unacceptable. And they say that part of the reason, I mean, the real the reason for this strike is they want a pay rise. But of course, yeah. they put in all this bleeding heart stuff about we're so concerned about patient safety. You know, there aren't enough doctors. And if we have better working terms, better pay, we'll get more, attract more doctors. Uh, so they say patient safety is, is at the heart of this dispute. Well, uh, they don't seem to care very much about patient safety right now, do they? So during this four-day strike, uh, there will barely be any patient safety. People are going to die because of it. So I don't know why we're supposed to put up with this, frankly, intellectually insulting claptrap about them caring about patient safety. Right now, they're abandoning it for, th for four days. It's, the, it's, called, it's also it's called the most disruptive strike in NHS history. Yes, it's putting people's lives at risk. That's, that's the thing here. You know, we're getting two sides, you know, talking about, hey, not getting round the table because of pathetic brinkmanship. Meanwhile, people are having more delays, worried about getting treatments. You know, staff that are still working and in certain areas will be stretched. I mean, I see it on the other end of it, whereby, you know, for instance, there's thousands of patients you can't get into care homes, so they're taking up beds and hospitals because there's nowhere to go. The whole system and infrastructure of the NHS is a breaking point. It, that is not the fault of the staff, but it is the fault of trusts and also the government. And it leads to something like this, where there's a pay demand dispute. This should have been resolved even before there was a dispute. I blame the government for that. If they'd actually been paying better wages in accordance to inflation for a number of years, this wouldn't have happened. But here we are in a situation whereby there's industrial actions, but the very nature of that, because of the sector that it's in, is putting people's lives at risk. And it's completely unacceptable. And both sides are to blame for that optic in itself. Uh, agreed. Now, uh, we're going to go uh, left field now, off-piste, if you like. I uh, want to ask you, uh, we covered this story yesterday. Uh, the Dalai Lama, he's 87. Uh, at the end of February, uh, he met up with some 11-year-old little boy uh, and basically uh, got the little boy to kiss him on the lips and then asked him to suck his tongue. Uh, and he's apologised for this, and uh, we're looking at that now. Uh, he's apologised for this and said, it, you know, he didn't mean to upset anybody or anything like that. Now, 
Uh, this footage is really disturbing. It, it's, it's wrong on so many levels. Uh, an 87-year-old man asking an 11-year-old boy to suck his tongue. Uh, and uh, he seems to have sort of got away with this scot-free. He's apologising. Oh, it's the Dalai Lama. That's lovely, you know. Buddhist leader, spiritual leader. If it was the Pope, there'd be uproar. If it was the Archbishop of Canterbury, he'd be out of a job. I mean, why are we going so easy on the Dalai Lama for this shocking uh, picture of, uh, you know, him sort of not treating a young boy in any way appropriately? Yeah, and there's been one or two arguments trying to uh, justify it, saying it's like some sort of better tradition. So, but I'm with you on this, Kevin. I, I don't buy this. If any public figure did something like that, I suspect they would be out of a job. You can't, you just can't justify this. It looks terrible. This, you know, the apology's been made and the rest of it, but it was still done. The apology was only made because it was out there. Um, and it's, it's made me feel, and a lot of people, really uncomfortable. Yeah. And if it was a politician, any other religious leader, actually any public figure, mm. I think that would be it in terms of the position that they're in. So so why is this suddenly the story dissipating here? Yeah, I Just because I... it's a Dalai Lama, the the optics are no different. This actually happened. It's, it's grotesque. It's completely wrong. It is grotesque. That's exactly the right word. And, uh, you, you know, I don't approve of cancel culture. I don't want to cancel the Dalai Lama. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm afraid that you can't behave like this. An 87-year-old man telling an 11-year-old boy, suck my tongue. It's not right. And I don't think he should get away with it, to be honest with you. Uh, James, uh, fantastic to talk to you on a Wednesday. I'll talk to you again on Sunday. Thank you very much for your time. That was James Melville, political and social commentator. When we come back, we're going over to Northern Ireland to talk to talk radio political editor Peter Carbwell about the visit of Joe Biden, uh, who's over there bringing peace to the region. Yeah, right. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studio. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. A big story of the day is, of course, Joe Biden's touchdown in Northern Ireland last night on Air Force One. He's wearing his aviators. He's bringing peace to the region. It's his mission, he tells us. Yeah, great. Really need your help on that one, Joe. 25 years ago, of course, uh, President Bill Clinton uh, and his envoy, George Mitchell, really did help. Uh, they helped Tony Blair... Uh, and Bertie Ahern forge the Good Friday Agreement, which has brought peace to a very troubled country. And uh, that peace is preserved until today. Uh, but uh, it is looking slightly fractious. Uh, I don't think uh, we can look to Joe Biden uh, to uh, bring peace back uh, as uh, some of the uh, locals begin to uh, throw petrol bombs and uh, disconcertingly, amid a £7 million security operation, much of Belfast in lockdown in Londonderry yesterday, seven pipe bombs were discovered. So all is not well over there. But uh, let's go over to Talk Radio a political editor, Peter Carbwell, who's, uh, I think, ready. Uh, are you at the uh, Ulster University, Peter? 
That's right, at the Ulster University, the new building, and you can perhaps hear the uh, helicopters circling ahead here uh, above us uh, in a seven million pound police operation. Lots and lots of police officers here, roads closed, Belfast essentially in lockdown as President Biden is staying at the Grand Central Hotel. In about half an hour, he is going to meet Rishi Sunak there. They're going to have a bilateral, they're going to have a bit of a chat, and then he will come down here to Ulster University and will give a speech around one o'clock, which we'll bring live to you on Talk TV just in regard to 25 years on from the Belfast Agreement, peace, prosperity, perhaps the announcement of some economic investment from American companies in Northern Ireland as well. We'll see what happens. Well, that sounds good, but uh, I think a lot of people are feeling that uh, old Joe. It's being incredibly patronising, you know, oh, I'm just flying in uh, for 20 minutes, Uh, I'm going to bring peace to the region, it is my mission to preserve peace. Uh, A, we don't need his help, and B, I don't think he's capable of that mission. Well, he's only here for about 15 hours, and about half of those 15 hours has actually been asleep. Um, so there's not a huge point, really, that is going to necessarily come out of this uh, visit to Northern Ireland. But listen, it's not going to do any harm. And I think that the American, continued American uh, view, the continued American involvement in Northern Ireland is something which politicians here often uh, accept and certainly welcome as well, more on the nationalist side than the unionist side. Certainly people like Bill Clinton and George Mitchell, you mentioned his special envoy there, who chaired the talks that led to the Belfast Agreement. They were studiously neutral and partial and all the rest of it, but uh, President Biden, uh, previously anyway as a senator, has been very vocal in his support for Ireland. He talks about his Irish roots, uh, his desire for a united Ireland, and that is something that of course jars with unionist politicians here. The biggest obstacle he has in the meeting he'll have with uh, DUP, Democratic Unionist representatives, the biggest unionist party in Northern Ireland, they're going to meet before the speech behind me here in this new building at Ulster University, and they will be the ones who will be hardest to convince that actually because Stormont has been on ice since October that the time has come to get back in because the DUP is still unhappy with the Windsor framework, still pushing for further changes but of course the many in the, the rest of the UK, many certainly in Westminster will say hold on a second, this past Parliament, okay there was a bit of uh, a rebellion from a few Conservative MPs, I think about 20 or 22 of them, quite a few people abstained and so on but essentially this is done so where else can we really go with this? We're not going to reopen the negotiations with the EU so really today it's symbolic importance the 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. That's the important bit in terms of tangible political benefit here in Northern Ireland. don't think it's going to be a huge amount. Well, uh, he heads uh, south a little later for the traditional pint of Guinness photo call. Uh, we'll drink one quarter of an inch of that uh, for the cameras. Uh, but just before you go, Peter, we'll be joining you later on, of course, for updates on this presidential visit and the speech, of course. Uh, but uh, the security operation, £7 million, pounds, uh, looks like it was probably worth it. They've discovered pipe bombs in L- Londonderry. Very worrying. That's right, it is certainly, and actually MI5 raised the level of threat from substantial to severe in the last few days, and there have been attacks on police officers in Londonderry. That is because, uh, well, around an illegal march by an organisation linked to dissident Republicans, those who are against the peace process, against the Belfast Agreement and its institutions. There were about 30 petrol bombs fired on, or thrown, I should say, on Monday. Then, within the last 24 hours, four crude pipe 
bombs found as well. The security situation is never perfect in Northern Ireland, but it's a heck of a lot better than it was 25 years ago, let me tell you, as someone who grew up here and remembers uh, when I was 13 years old, the Belfast Agreement being signed. So, yes, not perfect. The institutions would be great if they got back up and running. But in terms of Northern Ireland, just looking around the square here, seeing some of the buildings, some of the investment, uh, even this building that President Biden is going to open, uh, hilariously, Kevin, at the moment, it's called Block B and Block C, Ulster University, Belfast Campus. I think perhaps by the end of the day, it might be called the Biden Building. Yeah, well, I hope they've got an H block there. Right? Otherwise, there'll be real problems. <laughs> not, uh, anymore. not anymore. Yeah, not thank you down. very much, Peter. We'll talk later. Uh, that's Peter Cardwell, the talk radio political editor there in Ulster at the University of Belfast, uh, the University of Ulster uh, in Belfast, uh, where Joe Biden's due to make a speech. Let's go straight over uh, to my other guest on this important issue. He is the chairman of the Republican Overseas Organization here in London, uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Greg Swenson. Hello, Greg. Hello, Kevin. Great to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, your thoughts on this visit? Uh, Joe Biden has got a few backs up over here. You know, it's pretty patronising to turn up for 20 minutes on Air Force One in his aviator glasses. Congratulations. He got down the aeroplane steps all right. So that's so an improvement. Baby steps. Yeah, yeah. baby steps. One step yeah. at a time. Uh, yeah. But, you know, to say it's my mission to preserve peace in Northern Ireland. You're not going to do that on a 20 minute visit, Joe. No, and I think he's clearly showing his his bias here. You know, 15 hours in Northern Ireland, half of which he's asleep, or probably all of which he's asleep uh, for the most part, um, you know, compared to two and a half days in Ireland. I know that's not that big of a deal. He wants to celebrate his Irish roots and all that. But, you know, I think he just, again, demonstrates his bias toward Ireland over the UK and his hostility to, to Britain. And, and it's really a shame. And you've seen it, you know, historically, I think Peter mentioned uh, you know, 25, 35 years ago, his he was really opposed to British rule. And he, and he made that very clear when he was a senator. He was opposed to British rule in Northern Ireland. He he has this kind of Irish grievance or Irish grudge, you know, that that clearly the Kennedys have gotten over, you know, that, yeah. that many, you know, Irish American politicians embrace that, especially if you're running for office in a local election. You know, there's there is that connectivity with the Irish American community. If you're running for a, a local office or a congressional seat in South Boston or in the Beverly neighborhood in Chicago or something, but you know he's the president of the United States and he's really shown his his hostility to the UK. He's he's ignored the special relationship. You know he he's he's embraced. You know he he opposed the extradition treaty in 1985. So he's basically supported terrorism. He supported the IRA. And as recently as 2017, you saw that photograph with Rita O'Hare and Jerry Adams of Sinn Féin. Rita O'Hare was a convicted IRA terrorist. And and there he was, you know, with his arm around her in 2017. And then more recently, you saw how he treated Boris during the, Af the, the disaster in Afghanistan. He ignored Boris's urgent phone calls. He had terrible things to say about Liz Truss, you know, calling her economic policies, trickle-down economics. I mean, it goes on and on, the coronation snubbing. Yeah, it won't go to the coronation. That's to, yeah, you yeah. Know. You're right, you're right. I mean, he's not uh, making many friends over here, but basically he is, I would suggest to you, Greg, uh, using th this trip to Northern Ireland and then, of course, the traditional pint of Guinness trip to air, the main, <laughs> well, you mustn't say Southern Ireland, to Ireland, uh, yeah. uh this is electioneering, isn't it? 
To a certain degree, Kevin, I, I think he, he clearly embraces that. Again, I think he forgets that he's not in Scranton anymore. You know, he's not running for the local office. You know, this is so this might be a political mistake. The, U, the U.S., for the most part, really supports Britain. They understand the special relationship, the, the history, you know, that our great documents were in many ways, you know, based on the Magna Carta and the 1689 Bill of Rights and, and then the more recent special relationship in terms of security and foreign direct investment. I mean, that's a it's a really important relationship. And Biden is treating Ireland on, on the same level as the United Kingdom. And it's just not. And is that maybe to get votes? You've got 30 or 40 million Irish Americans. It's not the voting block that it used to be. It used to be reliably Democrat. It's no longer. So I think it might be, in many ways, a political mistake on President Biden's part. Uh, indeed, uh, the latest of many. Uh, thanks for joining us, Greg. But I can't let you go with asking, without asking, what the hell are you doing in Transylvania? Are you on the uh, Dracula tour or something? <laughs> I'm, at the, I'm at the Hotel Denali in, in Venice. Oh, Venice. Nice place. It's yeah. say, uh, weird up there that you're in Transylvania. Venice is much better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, enjoy yourself there and I'll see you on Sunday. That's Greg Swenson uh, from the Republican uh, Overseas Organization here in London with his take on Joe Biden's visit. Yeah, Joe Biden is no friend of England, I'll tell you that. Loves the Irish, can't stand us. Uh, won't even go to the King's coronation. This is an anti-English president. Don't forget that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, I'd like to be a fly on the wall when he meets uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak later. Rishi Sunak's calling the meeting bilateral talks. The Americans uh, are saying, no, 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 it's just a quick coffee. They're calling it bilatte talks. So that's their take on the importance of this encounter between Biden and Sunak. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about law and order and the fact that... Uh, People get sentenced to community service and they just don't do it and nobody punishes them. 
Unbelievable. Uh, so much to talk about there. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Uh, I got a text uh, from Tony in Liverpool. He said, uh, hi, Kevin. Uh, Biden is an Irish Republican, anti-Brexit, and he's not attending the coronation. He is no friend of the UK. You might think that, Tony, but as an assiduously unbiased broadcaster, I couldn't possibly comment. But you're right. Uh, Okay, let's uh, talk about law and order now. Uh, Community service is that kind of sentence where people are almost going to be sentenced to prison. But as you know, we don't have enough prisons. Why don't we build some more, by the way? Uh, So we can't send all these people to prison, to jail. Uh, So they get community service. They they call it unpaid work now. You go and sort of, I don't know, paint old people's homes and things like that. Uh, Now, uh, it turns out that uh, people just aren't doing it. So you get these kind of quite serious criminals. They get this sentence, community service. Uh, And over the past year, more than a million hours have not been done. So they get the community service, right, you start on Monday. They just don't turn up. Nobody pursues them. Nobody punishes them. And it just goes west. It just doesn't happen. Unbelievable. Uh, Let's talk to uh, former Met Police Detective Chief Inspector Norman Brennan. Morning, Norman. (laughs) <laughs> You've given me quite a few ranks extra, but uh, I'm under protector protectors, the retired police officer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it says chief inspector, so I'm going to call you chief inspector. You should have been a chief inspector because uh, you're, you're one of the good guys. Uh, what about this, though? This is a law and order issue. We know what community service is about. It's people who don't, you know, who probably 50 years ago would have been sent to jail when we had enough prisons, uh, but we don't now. So there's this sort of slightly lighter sentence where you're punished by doing unpaid work, uh, good works around, the, you know, painting old people's houses, that kind of thing. Uh, it just turns out that basically loads and loads and loads of people who get sentenced to community service just don't do it. They ignore the sentence. They don't turn up. A million hours not completed last year. Uh, and nobody pursues them. Nobody punishes them. This is a breakdown of law and order, isn't it? Well, it, uh, it sadly is, Kevin. Um, there are about 12 alternatives to imprisonment. Uh, and many young offenders have exhausted them all, sometimes many times over. Uh, and as you rightly point out, a community sentence is an alternative often to go into prison. And you would have thought that somebody would have thought, thank goodness, I'm not going to prison. Um, it's not going to do me any good. Uh, I'm being freed. And I've now been given community sentence, which I'll carry out uh, willingly because the alternative was imprisonment. Well, of course, if I'm not going to be supervised by the probation service and the probation service are in absolute chaos, like the police is and the prison service and the criminal justice system, then it's a circle that goes round and round. And many of these offenders will treat uh, community sentence, as you can see, with them doing less than a million hours. what they should have done with contempt. And unless you tell those that have committed a serious crime 
that uh, the alternative is community sentence rather than prison and they carry it out, I'm afraid it makes a mockery of the punishment in the first place. It certainly does. And of course, more and more people are avoiding jail because our prisons are chronically overcrowded and all uh, the judiciary has instructions to avoid prison if you possibly can. Uh, so that is not a healthy situation for a kickoff. As I keep saying, uh, you know, it's no use pretending that crime is going down, that we have less of a crime problem than we used to. So we don't need prisons. Crime is going up. Uh, and we need more prisons, so I think we should build some. Uh, let me bring you on to another issue here, uh, Norman. Uh, this is a really disturbing case. Uh, last week, a 12-year-old boy, uh, is it allegedly, but uh, it pretty much happened, uh, she, she is, uh, stole a 60-year-old grandmother's car uh, and then ran her over and killed her. And uh, he's in the dock for murder. He's 12 years old. So they haul him into court, accused of murder. As I say, uh, we mustn't prejudge what the verdict will be, but uh, he's accused of murder. He allegedly stole this woman's car and ran her over and killed her. Murder. Uh, in the dock, they took him into the dock. He's 12 years old. He sat in the dock. He sort of, he went like this. He sort of put his arms and he, he put his feet on the edge of the dock and he yawned while the judge read out the charge. And the court observed. Uh, now, what I'm asking you, this little piece of work, he begs the question, is it, you know, why do we give automatically give kids anonymity? So we can't name him for, for, because that's the rule. There's a blanket ban on naming underaged uh, juvenile offenders. But if you've got someone like this, you know, behaving like this, is it time to sort of start looking at some more serious cases like this one and say, no, 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 you can't have anonymity. Name them. Well, it's because they're children, Kevin. It's always been the same uh, ever since I was in policing. We've never um, identified them. I represented uh, James Bolger's mother, Denise, and uh, Venables and Thompson. Um, although they were, I, I, well, then they were named, uh, we couldn't really identify them. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And we can't identify many of them. I really think we should put that issue one side. And the biggest concern, as you rightly uh, raised, as I did last week when I posted this um, alleged murder, is the age of 12 years. Uh, over the last few years, I've been warning Britain, like I've warned them for the last uh, 40 years, uh, <laughs> very, very worrying trends. Now, we have got children killing children. Two years ago, we had the highest number of uh, child homicides in London on record. Yeah. Uh, there was 27 were stabbed to death. Uh, two were killed in an arson and another one was shot. And I reported uh, only uh, earlier on this year of 10 children that uh, up, up north that were all convicted of a murder. That is 10 children convicted of one murder and i'm regularly posting now on social media of children committing the most appalling crimes carrying knives uh, carrying guns you know committing yeah. the most serious crimes on our statute books so we have got a serious problem in britain anti-social behavior is out of control i wrote an article um a number of years ago for the telegraph the sunday telegraph and i stated uh, which i will state again now uh, about 20 years on, is that the public 
and society are more concerned with antisocial behaviour than they are with the terrorist attack. And the reason for that, Kevin, is that sometimes antisocial behaviour controls people's lives. Yeah. Many of the won't go to the shops. Even mothers with children will time their, um, mm. their trip outside school hours or inside school hours even. And when you think that the police, you rarely ever see them, if yeah. the, Good point. the committee social behaviour don't see them, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to continue to commit crime, knowing that there's very little that will be done. And I'm afraid this is a story where the circle goes round and round, the public suffer, victims suffer and society are living in fear now what sort of criminal justice system is that when the public feel that way i totally agree I mean, and you probably highlighted what i should have been thinking about this kid is you know like i, I just sort of feel you know this kid uh, is going to get very lenient treatment because he's 12 and i suppose that's probably right but i think he's symptomatic of more and more kids that we see today who are growing up in a society that has no respect for the police, no respect for the law, no respect for common decency. Uh, and that's very, very worrying. And that's why the work you do is very, very important, Norman. And I thank you for your time, as always. Always a pleasure to talk to you. That's uh, Norman Bremen, former police officer, served 31 years as a Met Police uh, detective. So uh, good to talk to him. Now, when we come back, we're going to be talking to Gavin Mortimer. He's a writer who lives in France. Uh, he writes for The Spectator about the migrant crisis and the shocking news that 1,116 came across over the past week. Stop the boats? I don't think so. Ugh, so much still to come. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, coming at you live from the Talk Radio studios. Kevin O'Sullivan. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back uh, into the second hour of our Mid-Morning Spectacular. I'm in for Mike Graham. We'll be until Friday. He's back next week. Uh, we have a sizzling 60 minutes uh, ahead until the next news. Later on, we'll be talking about uh, the King's Coronation Daily Mirror today. Uh, if I can just find it here. Uh, it's not here, of course. Uh, is uh, Yeah, here it is. Uh, all right. Oh, look at that. Coronation chaos fear. They say that behind closed palace doors, all hell has broken loose and that the coronation organisations are in a complete mess. Uh, the preparations are in chaos, we understand. So uh, we'll be talking to Talk Radio's political, uh, not political, royal editor Rupert Bell later about that. And also uh, suggestions that King Charles is trying to bring about the rehabilitation of his disgraced brother, Prince Andrew. Well, if you are King Charles, uh, please take it from me, one of your loyal subjects. We don't want Prince Andrew to be rehabilitated. Don't you dare try and impose that on us because we're not going to wear it. Uh, but we will be talking to Rupert Bell later on. So uh, a busy hour lies ahead. Let's go straight over to my first guest because we need to talk about the migrant crisis. Uh, stop the boat, said Rishi Sunak. Uh, he should put don't in front of that because he's not stopping the boats. It's an extraordinary situation, it seems to me, and to millions of other long-suffering Brits, that the migrant crisis is not dissipating. It's nowhere near being solved. It is escalating and escalating badly. Uh, let's talk to a spectator writer uh, and a man who lives in France and knows all about this, uh, Gavin Mortimer. Good morning, Gavin. 
Morning, Kev. Uh, Now, uh, the most worrying statistic in all of this uh, is that over the past week, 1,106 migrants have crossed the channel in dinghies and small boats. This is a record, the most this year, twice as many as the same week last year. Doesn't really gel, does it, with Rishi Sunak's recent statement, I will solve this crisis, I will stop the boats. If you're illegal, you will be returned. We can't return them to France for a kickoff because we have no returns deal. Uh, and... Uh, last year, something nearly 50,000 came across. We actually uh, deported 246 of them. Uh, this is getting worse and worse and worse, isn't it? It is, Kev, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The numbers of migrants crossing into Italy uh, are at their highest level since the crisis, the great crisis of 2015, 2016. In the first three months of the year, there were nearly 30,000. Um, that's about 20% up on 2022. Um, and there's predictions last year about 103,000 landed in Italy. There's predictions that, well, the, the Italian intelligence services, Kev, are predicting a worst case scenario of, get this, 700,000 <laughs> arriving this year. That's a worst case scenario. They expect it to be around about 150,000, which is still considerably more than last year. And a great many of those arrive in Italy. And they make their way to Calais, don't they? Exactly. They 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 don't want to stay in Italy. They don't speak Italian. (laughs) They speak English. And they know that once they're in England, they ain't getting sent back. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll return to that in just a second. But we need to discuss this extraordinary incident that apparently happened on Sunday. Uh, in deep fog uh, in the morning, uh, that a French warship uh, escorted uh, 90 migrants in a series of boats into British waters so that they could be escorted to our southern beaches. Uh, So in other words, we give Macron, Monsieur Macron, half a billion quid, the latest of our big payments for him and his country to help us solve our crisis, to cooperate. And it seems that our money is going towards funding the Navy so that the French Navy can escort migrants' boats into our waters and safe journeys to our beaches. Uh, not a very good investment by Mr Sunak, that half a billion quid, was it? Oh, and there's a lot of scepticism at the time when they had the, uh, the summit in Paris a month ago or so that uh, they... they pledge cooperation and they'll work together to tackle the problem. But it doesn't seem, it seems to be, you know, deja vu that we are exactly where we were two months ago, two years ago, five years ago, Kev. It's just the same problem. Um, the French don't really, as you said, they're taking our money. They're, I mean, this is a great political issue in, in France too. And goodness knows Macron's got enough in his plate at the moment. So he'll be quite happy, of course, that the more that he can sort of, you know, um, see go across the channel to England, the better for him. But uh, he's going to have to tackle this problem before the Olympics, uh, which are in 15 months, um, because there's great, vast, sprawling migrant camps in the north of Paris. So he'll be quite happy at uh, uh, what's going on um, in the channel. And it's, it's, it's really with no urgency from the French to, to tackle this problem. So we're left with the great question, Kev, what is the government going to do about it? And there doesn't seem to be anything 
They can do about it. I mean, of course, Rishi Sunak is is a bold five point plan that he unveiled about a month ago now. Uh, the biggest uh, uh, aspect of that was him saying, uh, "If you arrive on our beaches and you're illegal, uh, you will be sent back." Well, we can't send them back to France because we don't have a returns deal with France. So you do suspect, call me cynical, but uh, Mr. Sunak has simply been headline hunting uh, and not actually getting to grips with anything practical that might even go a fraction of the way to solving this problem. No, absolutely. And of course, Georgia Maloney, Italy's new PM, has, has encountered a, a similar problem in in um in her country that she was elected to power six months ago on a pledge of, of uh, stopping the illegal immigrants as i just said the numbers are up and she's realized that there's no there's no will in the eu to tackle this problem there's lots of hot air is talked but no concrete action um and she apparently there's tensions now with her coalition government her deputy pm Matteo salvini um, and it, it just it just goes to show, Kev, that it, it's a chaotic situation, and yet it's a chaos that has been with us for the best part of a decade. And the numbers are going to keep coming from yeah. from sub-Saharan Africa, where most of them are coming from. By the way, we hear all this stuff that they're fleeing war-torn countries. The most migrants landing in Italy so far this year from Ivory Coast. Yeah. As you said, uh, I mean, Italy's problem is our problem. Uh, I mean, the lucky thing Italy has got is when most of these migrants come over from Africa uh, or the Middle East and they land in Italy, I mean, their destination is Calais and then on to Britain. So they don't hang around in Italy. So when they land in Italy... That's it becomes our problem pretty swiftly. Uh, yesterday, Gavin, the Daily Mail splashed on its front page the very worrying story that terrorists are coming to this country disguised as migrants. Uh, Nineteen in particular are thought to have smuggled themselves into Britain and more and more are feared to be on their way. Uh, so this is extremely worrying because, of course, they turn up on our beaches uh, whereupon, you know, we put them into nice hotels or they might get this barge now or a disused airbase. Don't get sent back. They don't have documents. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they are. And now it seems some of them could be extremely dangerous terrorists uh, with intention to cause serious trouble here in Britain. Of a scandal of this, Kev, is that in 2015, two of the uh, Islamist terror cell that slaughtered 130 Parisians in November 2015, two of them posed as migrants to enter Europe. And this has been known. So Frontex, the border agency, highlighted this and said in the report in April 2016, this is extremely concerning. Nothing was done. In October 2020, a Tunisian posed as a, a illegal immigrant came to France expressly to murder three Christians at a church in Nice. Three years later, nothing has been done. It is an outrage. And the, the EU governments are putting the lives of their citizens at risk by sitting on their hands because they haven't got the moral courage to tackle this problem. 
Now, you live in France, Gavin. Uh, what is the French attitude as they read the stories of these migrants uh, arriving in Britain? We've got about 60,000 all over the country, uh, billeted in uh, nearly 500 hotels. They're looking for more hotels. Of course, we've got this barge sailing towards Portland Harbour in Dorset. They'll put 519 young men on that. Uh, they're commandeering disused RAF air bases. But this is just a drop in the ocean. Mainly, they'll still go to hotels. That's costing £7 million a day. Uh, what is the French attitude? What are the French thinking as they read these stories of this escalating chaos here in Britain? Well, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same situation in, in France, Kev. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned uh, earlier, there's these big, sprawling migrant camps. Um, you know, the, the French don't put their um, migrants up in four-star hotels. They give them a tent if they're lucky, and they live under a, a flyover in northern Paris. Um, but one of the one of the um, uh, uh, policies of Macron, he announced it last uh, autumn, was to distribute some of the migrants into the countryside. This caused an uproar in in one or two of the villages that were chosen. Um, there were big protest demonstrations, so that's quietly been shelved. So the the French people are. are as frustrated and and growing as angry as the British people at again you know I keep coming back to it the lack of political will to really tackle this problem it's just no government is doing anything about it and of course this is why we're seeing across Europe more and more um, voters turning to um, right wing parties. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last point, really. Uh, I mean, I'd like uh, you and I to conclude on some kind of solution that we could propose, but I can't think of one, except uh, a first step might be for Britain to leave the European Convention on Human Rights uh, so that we could uh, decide what to do with our migrants, uh, start flying them to Rwanda, maybe other countries for processing uh, without interference from European judges. Uh, that might be a start, but of course, Rishi Sunak never saw a global club that he didn't want to join. I can't see that happening, but it wouldn't be a bad idea as a starting point, would it? No, it wouldn't be a bad idea, but you've just hit the nail on the head, Kev. You know, Rishi Sunak is part of a cosy global elite of leaders. He's never going to do anything that's going to outrage them to, you know, to get the UN worked up. And you know, we, we, again, I'll go back to Maloney. When, when she was campaigning, she said, oh, we're going to have a naval blockade of, of the North African countries where the, um, the boats leave from. She dropped that because there was too much opposition and it was just uh, not worth a hassle. So, you know, Sunak, Maloney, Macron, we have, we have a lot of bold promises, but nothing ever happens. Gavin, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's uh, Gavin Morto, a, a writer for The Spectator over there in France. I mean, I barely know what to say about all that, except for, my God, what a mess. Uh, what do you think? Uh, 0344-499-1000. A French warship escorting 90 migrants into British waters only about three weeks after we gave them half a billion pounds to help us stop the boats coming over. What? <laughs>
344 When we come back, we'll be doing the um, uh, hospital strike, the uh, hospital doctors, junior doctors strike. So uh, stick with me. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Welcome back. It's time now to talk about uh, the junior doctors strike. We're into day two of a four-day strike that's been described as the most disruptive strike in NHS history. Uh, the doctors, the junior doctors, striking for a 35% pay rise. Good luck with that. Steve Barclay, the health secretary, says they don't have the money and that's too high a demand, so they need to lower it before he meets them. I don't know why he can't just meet them and say that's too high and then maybe they can bring it down this sort of ritual dance drives me crazy uh let's go down to the picket line in london uh talk to london-based doctor dr adam danesmond uh good morning adam good morning uh, how is the strike going how's the picket line picket line's very cold at the moment <laughs> yeah, we're all freezing out here but <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you could have done with better weather in the middle of April, but uh, these things are sent to try us. So. At, least it's, at least it's not raining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, it will be later, though. Don't worry about that. Um, let me ask you, uh, um, Steve Barclay says that your 35% pay demand is ridiculous and you need to bring it down before you meet them. You know you will bring it down. You know that a compromise will be reached in the end uh, and I don't want to uh, pour a bucket over you because I think Steve Barclay, rather than saying it uh, divorced from all of you, should get round the table and tell you in person. Isn't that just what you want? Oh, sorry, you've broken up. I was just I've saying, lost. can you hear me now? Oh, no, I can hear you. I can hear you. Okay, okay. Yeah. I was just saying that Steve Barclay says... 35% uh, is too high a pay demand and he won't meet you until you reduce it. Uh, my suggestion is that he does meet you and uh, says that to you to your faces because you know, uh, Adam, you will make a compromise in the end. It's important for you and Steve Barclay and the government to meet up, isn't it? Well, it's important us to meet and I know that the BMA have been doing everything they can in order to meet. They've given a list of dates that Steve Barclay was invited to meet and he didn't turn up to a lot of them. So the ball is very much in the government's court. Everyone at the BMA, all of the junior doctors are ready to meet, sit down at the table at any time. So that's what we're waiting for. Well, I think, I think, uh, I think that's a very reasonable demand and I think he should meet you. Uh, but the first thing he is going to say, Adam, is 35% is absurd. I mean, you do know you're not going to get that, don't you? I, I understand it's a negotiation starting point. But the nurse's uh, original demand wasn't far off 35% and they ended up with about 10. Do you accept that's the sort of figure you might end up with? Well, I don't, I don't accept that we should be aiming for less. If we look at the profession over time, our pay has been degraded by that amount. We're down more than 26%, including inflation. And we've only had substandard levels of pay rises over the years. You look at other industries that perform much better. And if we compare our profession to other countries where they pay 
better rates, better wages for the work we've put in, then you know people are leaving, and we need to retain our best and brightest in this country. Well, I, I, I made it clear uh, yesterday, talking to some of your striking colleagues, that uh, like I think a lot of people in this country, uh, I support your demand for a pay rise. You deserve a cost of living pay rise, something above the inflation rate. I agree with that. I think 35% is pie in the sky, but there you are. Now, the other raft, though, of your strike is patient safety. And we respect that as well. You say there aren't enough doctors, there aren't enough nurses uh, to uh, ensure patient safety we need better working conditions to attract more staff I respect that uh, what I would don't respect I've got to tell you is if you say you're interested in patient safety in the long term you can't it's pretty dis disingenuous to say you're interested in it right now because while you're on strike there's very little patient safety people will die because of your industrial action well, I say look at the last set of strikes that we did. There wasn't any increase in patient safety or patient mortality. Various studies have shown that patient mortality does not increase during strike. As we move staff around, we use very uh, experienced consultants in emergency departments. We still perform emergency surgeries. So I don't think it will be an issue, but that's obviously something I can't comment on. No, I understand that, but I, th I think it is an issue. I mean, there's no doubt when frontline medical workers like yourself walk out, and as I say, I'm not disrespecting your right to industrial action, uh, to uh, strike for more pay, uh, but it does affect patient safety, and there is no doubt that people will die because of your strike, just as they did because of the nurses' strike and the ambulance driver's strike. So that, I think that is a problem. Uh, but I would like you, uh, let's go back to our original starting point uh, you know let's both of us uh, call for Steve Barkley to stop the ritual dance stop saying he won't meet you uh, because your demand is too high get round the table if he could tell you that face to face it would be a starting point wouldn't it yes yes well uh, I'm going to leave you there because it's uh, it's really all kicking off there uh, and I wish you well thank you very much Adam uh, that's Dr Adam Danesman now what do you think I mean I, you know I, I've made it clear I'm worried about frontline medical workers going on strike I don't think any industrial action is worth a single life let alone hundreds of lives potentially thousands this strike like the nurses strike and like the ambulance strikes will cost lives. People will die. Patients will die because of it. Are you happy with that equation? Don't think I am. 0344 499 1000. Maybe frontline medical workers need to be like the army, like the police, like prison officers. They need to be on the banned from striking list. Uh, what do you think? 0344 499 1000. Let's quickly take a call. Let's go to uh, Colchester in Essex and talk to Gwen. Hello, Gwen. Hello, Kevin. Thank you very much for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, you make me laugh when you blow up and when you put on your funny face when you're taking up stuffy people, stuffy people. Anyway, listen, my point is this. Talking about the people coming over in the boats, I've got a theory. Right. Everybody and their aunt that you have on your show has been putting forward suggestions. And I just feel that Mrs May, when she was in charge of the government, mm -hmm. tried to do lots and lots of things... I think that under the table, she obviously made an agreement with either the common market, because you know we're still paying them money, yes. that we would either pay them money or we would keep our borders open for so many years. Hearing your gentleman in France mm -hmm. saying the things that 
he was saying about certain people that have come to France. Yeah. I really think... Has anybody ever heard of the Trojan horse? <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the the Mr. Talking of uh, um, Theresa May. Mm. I mean, you've you've seen the the barge uh, which is going to house five hundred nineteen yeah. young male migrants in the port of Portland in Dorset. Drop, drop in the ocean. Yeah, of course it is, and so is the disused yeah. RAF bases that they're going to. Yeah. They're all drops in the ocean. They're optics. They're for headlines. They're not going to yeah. make any difference. But of course, uh, Theresa May stood up in Parliament and said this was immoral and we mustn't do this. I don't know why Theresa May just doesn't give it all up and join the Labour Party. Well, quite honestly, I feel that there was a deal done because whatever oh, any of your very knowledgeable um, uh, journalists and commentators say, nothing can happen. And I think we're blaming uh, the present Prime Minister the way we've blamed every other Prime Minister recently. I think they're hogtied. I think that there's an agreement being made that, that we've got to stick to for so many years. Well, I, th I think you might have a point, Gwen. Uh, what I would say is I think they're hogtied by their own globalist prejudices. Oh, probably. Uh, that, you know, that, 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 that Rishi Sunak likes to make a song and dance, I'm going to stop the boats. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes down to uh, the nuts and bolts of actually doing that, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the idea of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, which would be a big step forward. Uh, yeah. And he says stop the boats. Well, if he's if he's really wanting to stop the boats, why is he renting massive great barges yeah. to put more migrants on? Why is he uh, commandeering disused RAF bases to put more migrants in? Why is he looking for more hotels to put more migrants in? The migrants come across on boats. He's not stopping them, is he? Because he can't. <laughs> That's well, my opinion. Yeah, I, 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 I see what you mean. I mean, I, I absolutely respect that view, and I think there's probably something in it. I, I would I say, you say, I, I say, I, you say he can't. I say he won't. I say he doesn't. It really deep down doesn't really want to. Apart from the optics of it, it would look good for him as prime minister. But he's not prepared to go the extra mile to make it happen. Why wasn't he prepared? Because he can't. Because there's some sort of agreement in place. And I really think, listen, Kevin, I'm 84 yeah. and I've seen a lot of stuff uh, and I've seen dirty works and under the counter and all sorts of yeah. things. But at least in the last war, we didn't just let the German army come trailing across. <laughs> That's a very anyway, good listen, point. I'm, yeah, if it, if it was the war, we'd, we, you know, we'd probably be giving them boats to come across. We'd be hiring barges to put the Nazis in, wouldn't we? You're absolutely right, uh, Gwen. Uh, I'm not sure I entirely agree with you, uh, but I sort of do. Uh, and you, we're certainly on the same page. And it's lovely to hear from you. Please call again. Uh, Gwen in uh, Colchester in Essex uh, when we come back uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the CBI we're going to be talking to Andrew Allison he's the chief executive of the Freedom Association uh, he's battling for freedom of speech and uh, depressingly he fears he's losing the battle and I know what he means stay tuned for that I'm Kevin O'Sullivan this is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio Studios Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 